Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. We'll be back in just a few seconds to talk with Boris Kargalitsky about the coming climate crisis and how that impacts the war in Ukraine and the general political situation with Russia. Please don't forget, there's a donate button on the website. And if you're watching somewhere else, a podcast or YouTube or Substack or one of the various platforms, uh, come on over to the website, get onto our email list. And if you'd like to support what we are doing, click the donate button. Be back in just a few seconds. As heat waves savage much of Europe, Russia has not yet been hit by such extreme temperatures this summer, but the overall trend in Russia is perhaps even more threatening. Over the last 100 years, the warming in Russia has been around 1.29 degrees Celsius, while warming on the global scale has been 0.74 degrees, according to the IPCC fourth assessment report, showing that the warming of the Russian climate is happening at a faster rate than average. The UN Weather Agency said that it has certified a 38 degree centigrade, that's a 100.4 Fahrenheit reading in the Russian town of Verkhoyensk in 2020 as the highest temperature ever recorded in the Arctic. The latest in a string of alarm bells about our changing climate, they said. The World Meteorological Organization said the temperature, quote, more befitting the Mediterranean than the Arctic, which registered on that day, June 20th, 2020, during a heat wave that swept across Siberia and stretched across the Arctic Circle. Permafrost, which covers nearly two-thirds of Russian territory, is rapidly thawing. More dramatic freeze-thaw cycles in the subsoil are eroding urban infrastructure in Russia's Arctic cities, home to over 2 million people, and pose a mounting risk to Russia's 200,000 kilometers of oil and gas pipelines, not to mention thousands of miles of roads and rail lines bridging Russia's widest rivers. Oil and gas revenues make up around 40% of Russian government revenues, and by some reckoning, as much as 57% of the Russian GDP depends directly or indirectly on oil exports. So climate change and dependency on oil and gas are two fast-moving trains on their way to a head-on collision for the Russian economy. All this an existential threat to Russia before the invasion of Ukraine. Of course, this threat applies to the entire world economy, including the United States, which may have a more diversified economy than Russia, but is facing every bit as much a climate disaster with heat waves, fires, floods, and extreme weather soon reaching catastrophic proportions. If ever there was a time when Russia, China, and the United States needed to cooperate on climate, it's now. Since Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine and American and European determination to use this as an opportunity to weaken Putin, no matter how many Ukrainian lives are lost in the process, Cooperation on the climate crisis is even more remote. Combine that with increased threat of nuclear war, more pandemics and famine in much of the world, global capitalism is in deep, deep crisis, even though massive wealth continues to flow into the billionaire's pockets, the ultra-rich fiddle as the world burns. Now joining us for a perspective from Russia is Boris Kargalitsky. 
He was deputy to the Moscow City Soviet between 1990 and 93, during which time he was a member of the executive of the Socialist Party of Russia. He was co-founder of the Party of Labor and advisor to the chairperson of the Federation of Independent Trade Unions of Russia. He has the distinction of having been thrown in jail by both the Soviet government and the Putin government. He's also the author of several books, including Empire of the Periphery, Russia and the World System, Russia under Yeltsin and Putin, Neoliberal Autocracy, and New Realism, New Barbarism, The Crisis of Capitalism. Currently, he's a professor at Moscow Higher School for Social and Economic Sciences, and he's editor of RABCOR, a daily Russian journal on YouTube and a channel of left-wing debate, and he joins us now from Moscow. Thanks for joining us again, Boris. Thank you, Paul. President Putin, the Russian leadership, the Russian oligarchy, um, they have to be aware of just how threatening this climate crisis is. I, I don't think they're outright, they're not outright climate science deniers. Uh, they, they know how, what this is going to mean for the Russian economy uh, and, and, and just the lives of people uh, sooner than later. Uh, how does this factor into their analysis, of both in a general way in terms of the invasion of Ukraine, and, and obviously the need for global cooperation, which we are, couldn't be further from. Interestingly enough, I think, Paul, that Russian leaders are not climate change deniers, but they're climate change ignorers, uh, in the sense that uh, they do not consider that to be a serious problem. I have, to, I, have to say, I have to say that seems to be more or less the truth in the West, too, but go ahead. Yes, very much so. Uh, but of course, there were politicians like Donald Trump who presented some kind of vision based on not just ignoring, but denying the threat. So far, no one in Russia publicly denied that there is a threat or, or that there is a problem. But at the same time, no one among our Russian top politicians ever considered that to be anything serious. Uh, well, and this is very interesting and uh, tragic in a way because, uh, well, as you already told, uh, much of Russia's territory uh, is in the permafrost zone and much of Russian economy depends on it. And uh, for example, I have been to Yakutia a few times, for example. Uh, I know this region not necessarily that well, but I love it. I really love it. It's a it's a really exciting place, and uh, it is really very uh, interesting place uh, with a lot of culture and uh, a lot of social and uh, even political activities and so on. Uh, interestingly enough, it's considered to be one of the most democratic regions in Russian Federation. So far, they didn't have uh, political prisoners. For example, almost every Russian region has uh, its own political prisoners. Uh, Yakutia so far didn't have any. Uh, and uh, that tells you much about this uh, place. But anyhow, uh, much of the territory of Yakutia is uh, in permafrost zone, and they really feel global warning, uh, sorry, warning, <laughs> it's a Freudian slip. Uh, they really feel uh, global warming. Uh, because uh, you see the, uh, the buildings uh, are becoming unstable in the city. Uh, the buildings are uh, 
not collapsing yet, but uh, they're discussing what are they going to do if the temperature increases um, just a little bit more and a little bit further, and then uh, there would be a very serious problem uh, for the city of Yakutsk, for example. Uh, and um, there are plenty of other problems like that. Uh, so um, the answer of uh, Russian elite is very simple. As long as we can continue to sell oil, the rest doesn't matter. That's a very simple and, in a certain sense, a very effective answer because, uh, well, they consider that this can continue, this will continue for another decade or so, and they do not care about anything which is going to happen in like two or three decades from now. It's, um, it's not very humane to think like that, but that's the way they think. And, uh, well, theoretically, Putin is planning to stay in power till 2036. Uh, the basic idea is that till 2036, global warming is not going to become uh, catastrophic for Russia, and after, it doesn't matter. That's the policy. They're probably quite wrong about that because the latest uh, IPCC prediction is a global uh, warming could hit 1.5 by uh, 2033, if not sooner. And if the overall trend of warming in Russia is in fact maybe one and a half times faster, uh, or at least uh, significantly faster than the global warming, that means Russia could be hitting 1.5 sooner than any, anywhere else, and, and both the permafrost effects and such, and heat waves, uh, and all the rest of the extreme weather could be hitting Russia actually worse and, and, and more quickly. Uh, but they, as you say, unlike, you know, more or less like the elites everywhere, uh, they figure, well, well, we'll keep at it while the going's good, and maybe there'll be some wonderful technology solution. Uh, is, is Putin and, and the Russian government doing anything to use all the oil revenues to, to more diversify the economy? I saw a quote somewhere, Putin says they're going to wean Russia off oil and gas, but that doesn't seem to really be happening. Uh, they keep speaking about uh, that kind of uh, saving the country from oil addiction for for the 20 years of Putin in power, for the for the whole period of Putin staying in power. I remember them speaking about that about 2000. Now it's 2022. Uh, so this is a very, very popular kind of uh, melody, but it never goes anywhere uh, close to any practice. On the contrary, throughout these 20 years, when they kept speaking about oil addiction, uh, which has to be overcome, it increased the dependency of Russian economy on oil and gas and fossil fuels uh, and raw materials in general increased massively throughout the period of Putin's uh, power. And uh, actually now it's getting even worse uh, because uh, the oil economy is less hit by uh, sanctions at this point. Though in the long run, it's going to be hit. In the long run, I think it's going to be hit very heavily. And to some extent, it's good news for Russia because uh, it will um, speed up 
the process of change, which will not go from the top, of course. Uh, it is going to be very dramatic and maybe even catastrophic, but uh, to some extent, uh, it's kind of normal. History is not necessarily a nice road to go. It's uh, very uh, dramatic itself. Uh, you should not expect it to go so smoothly. So uh, in that sense, and there is a tremendous contradiction between the objective necessity to do certain things and the uh, objective capacity of the ruling elites uh, to do necessary things. I think, uh, well, one uh, problem is that uh, to do the things which we have to do, to do what is actually needed, we first have to get rid of these elites because they are the main obstacle. Their interests, their interests are vested uh, and rooted in, in their uh, in the current state of uh, the current uh, state of things in the current uh, in the current um, system in the current way things are done and uh, in that sense you see any serious attempt to change things is uh, not possible because it means for them to that they have to abolish themselves they're not going to abolish themselves. They're going to, and they want to stay in power. They want to uh, keep living off uh, oil revenues and so on and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, the irony of this current crisis and this current war is that in a very specific and very uh, traumatic way, I think it's going to contribute to the global restructuring and to their uh, technological change. Uh, in a certain sense, I think the general trend was already more or less formulated and more or less discovered by Western elites um, in the sense that they, uh, they do understand uh, that uh, certain changes are necessary, uh, but there is a problem. The problem is who is going to pay the bills, who's going to pay for the, for the process. And... Uh, why one and one thing which is absolutely clear uh, for the elites in the West is that they do not want to pay. They're going to make someone else to pay for the transition. So uh, unlike Russia, uh, where they do not think the transition is um, possible or necessary, Western elites, which are somewhat more advanced, they are one step further in the sense that they do understand that something has to be done but somebody else, not them, has to pay the costs of transition. Well, that somebody else's should be workers should pay. <laughs> That's the somebody else. Uh, or, or, or poor countries that they could try to squeeze something out of. Exactly, exactly. Here I'm coming exactly to that point. Uh, uh, the others are either uh, toiling masses of Western countries or some foreign countries which do not belong to the West, to the Western core. So these are two <laughs> potential sponsors of the transition within their uh, vision of transition. And the war in a certain sense is uh, facilitating that kind of strategy. Uh, because on the one hand, uh, if you are speaking in terms of uh, social division of costs, uh, the, uh, social distribution of costs, uh, then you can say, look, we are at war. Uh, we, are, we have to defend freedom and democracy and uh, sovereignty of Ukraine, not just Ukraine, but Europe as a whole, and so on and so on and so on. And by the way, it's all true. 
It's all true. There is a threat opposed by Putin and his uh, entourage, his oligarchs. So, but uh, it is a real threat, but it's also a great pretext to make uh, masses pay. So the best pretexts are the ones which have some truth behind them. You see? If it is a total lie, it's a, if it is a total propaganda, it's very hard to convince people. But when there is something to it, when there is a serious element of truth within this discourse, it's much easier to sell that discourse to the public because you can point to the real facts, to the hard facts that prove that this discourse is not just uh, taken out of there. So you're talking about NATO expansion and things like this? Not only this, I think uh, the very idea of redistribution of costs uh, is part of the transition. Uh, ordinary people are going to uh, accept lower living standards, less consumption of uh, energy, uh, probably less consumption in general, uh, lower wages, and uh, well, some kind of new austerity. Uh, let's put it, uh, it will be not financial austerity, but it will be energy austerity. Uh, this kind of new austerity, which is not that much about uh, having less money, but which is more about having less access to fuel, to energy, to, uh, to, uh, to well, heating, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, well, uh, people have to stay a bit less warm. Uh, and uh, it's not just about the uh, companies, the big corporations failing or not being interested to pay their share of the costs of transition, but it will be about evil Russia. Uh, it will be about evil Putin, which doesn't, doesn't change the fact that Putin's policies are really evil, you see? Uh, and in that sense, it's a very good use of the war uh, to uh, promote particular agenda. The agenda of, uh, let's put it, fuel austerity, this kind of new austerity. Uh, and, uh, trying to retain as much as possible uh, from uh, the neoliberal order. I don't think that they will be able to sustain neoliberal order anyhow. It's collapsing, it's falling apart, and it's not uh, um, kind of um, sustainable within the new model of development. Uh, it's not compatible with the, with the new emerging model, but they're going to sustain to keep as much as possible from that model within the new one. Uh, so, and for that very reason, the war is a very good solution. And then speaking about countries, again, there are different countries. Poor countries are so poor, there is not much you can get out of them. And uh, Western countries, yes, they are going to pay, but uh, the toiling masses are going to pay. Then who is else uh, the one who, who, who is going to pay? Russia will pay uh, because, uh, for example, they will cut oil uh, trade. But uh, if uh, it were within the uh, peaceful uh, situation, uh, there would be a big quarrel, a big debate, who is going to cut that much, who's going to cut less, who's going to cut the oil interests more, and, and so on and so on. How to divide, uh, how to distribute these cuts, these uh, uh, decreases of production or income between different uh, groups within uh, the oil economy. 
at this stage, uh, the solution is discovered. Russia will pay the cost. Uh, they will cut Russian oil. Uh, they will cut Russian oil uh, revenues to the minimal level possible. At the same time, Saudis and uh, uh, some others will probably retain um, uh, their, uh, their income, at least much of their income, and definitely increase their share of the market. So it's also a way to redistribute the markets, while at the same time, uh, in the long run, diminishing uh, their uh, importance, the, uh, diminishing their um, uh, the dependency of uh, uh, economy or global economy on on oil and uh, fossil fuels in general. So the long term uh, trend is to diminish their role of fossil fuels, but the short term aspect of it is to redistribute the market of for fossil fuels simultaneously. So it's not just about cutting the market down, but it's also about redistributing shares within the market, which potentially is going to diminish. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's the situation which generates a lot of conflict anyhow. So in that sense, uh, Russian-Ukrainian war is just a specific aspect of a global transition process. And in a certain sense, it's uh, used, it is used by Western elites in a very competent and very, uh, very strategic way. Uh, and uh, this shows the difference between Russian uh, and oligarchy and Western oligarchs. Because Western oligarchs are capable of thinking strategically and they're capable of developing strategies. While Russian oligarchs behave kind of like animals, you know, they react only to the immediate threats, only to the immediate factors, only to the immediate news, uh, to the recent news. And uh, that's why they're totally incapable of developing strategies or they develop wrong strategies like uh, trying to get back into the world as it existed 200 years ago, something like that, you see. Like, okay, let's like uh, turning their nostalgia for the uh, old Russian empire into a kind of quasi strategy, which is uh, totally disconnected from reality. And uh, that's why Russian oligarchy is exactly the one who is going to suffer. And uh, honestly, I don't have any pity for them. I'm not sorry for them. I don't think uh, there is any reason uh, for us to be unhappy about Russian oligarchs being part of the price. But unfortunately, Russian tolling masses are also going to pay the price. And uh, this is a much more serious question. And uh, the question is whether Russians are going to accept that kind of uh, uh, transition uh, and whether the Russians are going to accept the role of passive victims of what's going on. Um, we'll see because Russian society, as I told you before, is very apathetic and uh, atomized and uh, apolitical, but maybe things will change. I, th I think you might be... Uh overestimating the Western oligarchs' ability to have any kind of uh, strategy here other than uh, a strategy of what you were saying earlier, ignoring, uh, but not, not being outright climate deniers. But the strategy right now seems to be a confrontation with China. And, uh, and we're looking not just is that strategy coming from the section of the elites that are behind the Biden administration, 
But the uh, far right, which may well take control of Congress in 2022, in the next election in 2024, uh, take the presidency, uh, you may have the far right in control of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the White House. And the far right uh, around Trump, much of which is Christian nationalist, uh, their enemy number one actually isn't Putin and Russia, it's China. And in fact, there could be, you know, if they had their way, there would be an alliance with Putin and Russia. But current American policy has actually pushed Russia closer to China. But these Christian nationalists, Putin's kind of a hero to them. So it's, it's kind of unpredictable how this might go uh, if, in fact, they do get control of the White House and, and, and thus the armed forces. Um, is, in terms of the Russian positioning in this, cannot China make up for whatever they lose from the West in terms of oil revenues? So, and maybe, you know, maybe they don't have to pay. Maybe they just have to become a satellite state of China. No, no. Well, of course, uh, Russia elite probably can accept the role of a satellite state of, for China. But uh, Chinese are not very interested. Chinese are really not interested in uh, taking care of Russia's problems. Uh, for example, now Russia is trying to sell oil, which it fails to sell uh, to the West, uh, to China. Chinese uh, say, okay, that's a very good idea, but uh, we need uh, you to uh, accept a discount up to 40%. In that sense, uh, it's very interesting that China behaves uh, towards Russia these days very much the same ways as Russia used to behave towards China in the 19th century. Uh, it's a kind of uh, irony of history. Uh, so uh, Chinese are approaching very brutal new colonial uh, line um, towards Russia. Uh, they're, uh, they're practicing this kind of new colonial brutal uh, exploitation of Russian resources. Uh, and uh, it is so brutal and so, so aggressive that even Russian oligarchs are mm, really scared because uh, if it continues like that, they're going to become broke. They'll, they'll be broke, they'll be out of business and so on. Uh, because Chinese insistent uh, for years that uh, they're not going to negotiate. They're not going to negotiate. Uh, they're just going to take whatever can be taken. That, it, that's it. That's, that's about it. And um, uh, by the way, uh, also the interesting thing is that when China, you have, I've been to Siberia quite, quite a few times. I, I love Siberia. I go there very often. Uh, when there is Chinese business coming, it's a disaster. They just take away everything and they don't build any infrastructure. They don't uh, fix anything. They just take uh, away anything they can and go away. You see, that's the way they use the resources in Russia. And um, in that sense, also Russian society is becoming very anti-Chinese, not in the xenophobic, not in the xenophobic sense. Not in the xenophobic sense, not, not that Russian people are against Chinese people, but they're very much against Chinese, Chinese business and uh, Chinese politicians and, uh, and so on. 
they're considered to be a very serious threat, including some crazy things because sometimes, for example, in, in Irkutsk, where they have this Lake Baikal, uh, which is the, the deepest uh, lake in the world, as you know, which has the, the, uh, the largest quantity of water in the world in, in one place. Uh, so in, in, in Irkutsk, everybody is afraid of uh, Chinese stealing the water from Baikal which probably is not exactly true, but then they say, okay, they will just uh, bottle all this water and take it away and, and, and drink it. And uh, there, are, there is 1.4 billion Chinese, so it's just enough to, to drink out the whole lake. Uh, and of course, this is, a, this is not serious, of course, you understand. It's, it's more like a kind of um, um, phobia, but that just gives you the idea of how Russians feel about Chinese business coming. So, so what do we? What, so, what do we do? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and finishing. And technologically, technologically, uh, interest. Technologically, interestingly enough, China is not really uh, interested or uh, cap capable or uh, ready to share anything with Russia at this point. So, in that sense, again. Uh, Chinese uh, Chinese officials, Chinese bureaucracy and uh, capitalists, they are looking at Russia's trouble uh, with some kind of uh, mm, satisfaction, I should say. Uh, they uh, probably want these troubles to become deeper. Then at some point, maybe they will move in um, in the position of, uh, of strength, so to speak, and maybe not just help out, but kind of intervene to get uh, as much as possible out of this trouble. So the the neocons, some more classical neocons, a la the Republicans that, that were around the Bush administration, many of them have more or less either actual people or in terms of the way they look at the world, taken over much of Biden foreign policy. Uh, what What's on the horizon is, is Trumpian, with or without Trump, uh, which will be uh, not led by the classical neocons, but much with the same uh, perspective of the need for American global dominance, but with more passion or hatred for China and wanting to take the Taiwan situation, perhaps even up to the acknowledgement of uh, independence for Taiwan, which would spark in all likelihood, war. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Russians, as you say, you've described the Putin uh, government and the Russian oligarchy. I mean, there's not a lot of hope in this situation, and it's a, perhaps more globally dangerous than ever in the history of the world, of course, because of climate and also because of the nuclear threat. Um, so what are we peoples to do I am not pessimistic, honestly. I think that uh, uh, the night is darkest, as you know, before the dawn. Uh, and I think uh, we are going to face uh, the period of turmoil. Uh, but uh, the uh, problem for the elites is that they are, their policies are inconsistent with the reality. You see, with, they're inconsistent with the objective needs of, de, uh, of development or, and 
the objective process which is uh, taking place in the nature of the in the on the planet. So in that sense, uh, I I still do believe that there is that objective forces of nature and history and social development they are getting uh, their kind of business done in one way or another, and. Uh, I think once uh, we get into the uh, deeper into these troubles, uh, for example, in the case of Russia, it's very clear that uh, the existing structures of state, uh, if and when we are going to face serious military uh, failures and defeats in this Ukrainian war, uh, are going to um, start decomposing somehow. And uh, people will become repoliticized. They will have to become repoliticized. Uh, the troubles we are facing ahead will make people act, uh, even though they're very apathetical, apolitical, and so on, but people will have to act. And more importantly, they will have to organize. They will have to all self-organize because there is no other way to solve to, to sell, uh, uh, solve. Sorry, there is no other way to solve the problems. And uh, well, I think the agenda for for the left is very clear. It's, this is kind of eco-sociological. Uh, so, sorry, the agenda for the left is very clear. It's eco-socialist and uh, uh, democratic planning, which is absolutely necessary. And uh, it's very easy to explain this agenda to people. For example, coming back to Siberia and Yakutia, uh, enormous forest fires uh, took place uh, a year ago, enormous, terrible forest fires, the worst since 1912. So in 1912, there were terrible forest fires in Siberia. And uh, also uh, they continued uh, during the first years of the First World War, by the way which is also a very telling uh, association with, with the past. And uh, well, uh, then uh, what Soviet Union did, uh, Soviet Union reforested Russia massively. There was a huge problem, uh, there was a huge project, a huge program of reforestation of uh, Russia, which was uh, realized um, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and up to uh, 1930s, late 1930s, for example, uh, and um, actually did work quite considerably. Uh, why did, did it work? Uh, because there was planning, there was um, a serious effort to uh, do things in a complex way, uh, so that com combine social, economic, uh, uh, financial and so on uh, elements uh, within uh, one particular effort to, to achieve particular goals. Uh, and uh, for example, now we, we need the same thing to be done again. Uh, it's not possible to do through the market. Uh, and it's not that I'm saying that we need to go back to Stalinist kind of centralized uh, bureaucratic planning and, uh, and autocratic political regime. What I'm saying is that some kind of coordinated planning uh, is necessary. Uh, environmental activities should be combined with economic development and social development. Uh, these things do have to be done together. And the important thing, you have to uh, expropriate the oligarchs. Uh, 
uh, there are resources. There are plenty of resources available. These resources are just in the wrong hands. Uh, these resources are in the hands of the people who do not want things to move. They want things to stay exactly as they are now. Uh, so uh, there must be some kind of global effort to expropriate global oligarchy and to establish uh, global environmental planning uh, combined with social development. Well, there's no doubt we need it, but we're far from it in terms of movements uh, organized and capable of doing that. So something's going to have to happen at the elite level to at least mitigate what's coming. Uh, I'm not all that optimistic, but there, there needs to be something because there's no way the global oligarchs are getting expropriated before 2050. And by 2050, we're into past two degrees and we're on our way to three and four. And Well, I disagree. I disagree. We have to fight to make it happen much faster. I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for fighting it, but I... Well, I, I assure you that uh, the political crisis in Russia will uh, fuel a lot of uh, political fire uh, around the world, and it's going to come. Well, there needs to be a breakthrough somewhere, and be, if it's Russia, would be great. But that said, uh, let me just say that there, there, one thing that will at least facilitate the situation will be an end to the war in Ukraine, because as long as that continues... Uh, it fires the worst instincts and, and nature of the West and of Russia. Uh, so is there any, pro any f prospect for that actually happening? Uh, you know, I, I think I said in the last interview in Western TV coverage, there's a lot of talk about how the sanctions against Russia are actually hurting Europe and the United States. Uh, there's a lot of talk that inflation is going to help elect the Republicans, uh, and, and a lot of that inflation is coming because of the war. Maybe there's an appetite on the on uh, on at least sections of the Western elites who don't want to use this just to crush uh, Russia, but actually might see the necessity for some kind of uh, agreement. I don't. Uh, is there any? Is there a growing appetite for a deal in Russia? I'm not sure there is in Ukraine itself, but. Well, first of all, why should Ukraine make a deal with uh, uh, the Russian aggress aggressors? Let me be very clear. Uh, Russian army invaded Ukraine. It's taken over its territory. It's shelling uh, uh, Ukrainian cities. It's killing Ukrainian citizens en masse. Uh, it's killing thousands of civilians, thousands of civilians. Uh, it is uh, robbing uh, Ukrainian uh, production because... Now, what we see now is that uh, Russian military are forced. It's not the idea of the, it's not the, the function of the military, but they are forced uh, to help uh, moving uh, grain uh, resources out of Ukraine in the occupied territories or moving out steel, uh, which is stocked uh, in Mariupol and so on and so on, which military actually hate doing because they're not robbers, they're fighters. So there is a lot of discontent among the military uh, about that kind of use of, of their force. And I think the military are not very happy with the war anymore, at least. Not, not, not anymore, at least. Uh, but I, uh, I don't see Putin compromising um, with, uh, with Ukraine or, or with the West unless uh, he is allowed to 
continue robbing uh, Ukraine and destroying Ukraine. So the the very purpose of the uh, uh, of Putin's policy at this point is not to conquer Ukraine. There is no way they're going to do it. Uh, the policy is about wrecking Ukraine. By the way, they learned that from Americans. This is very much like Americans who kind of addressed the problem of Iraq, for example. It was not so much about taking it over. Uh, it was not about rebuilding Iraq or Afghanistan. It was about wrecking Iraq and Afghanistan. This is exactly what Russia is doing these days towards Ukraine. Uh, in, in, in the Russian government, not Russian people, of course, Russian government is doing that. And in the most, in the most brutal way. And uh, uh, there is no way uh, it can be stopped unless uh, Russian troops are evacuated from uh, Ukrainian soil. But that's not that's not that's not going to happen. I, I, I mean, the, you asked the question, why should the Ukrainians make a deal? They should make a deal to save lives. Paul, 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 there is no other way except Ukrainian army kicking Russian uh, aggressors out of Ukraine, which is happening right now. These days, uh, just in real time, these days in real time, it is happening. Ukrainian army is winning the war in real time right now day after day after day. And this is exactly what Russian military know. This is why Russian military are exactly against the war and Russian military are very uh, eager to stop the war and evacuate as soon as possible, but they're not allowed to do that by the political leaders because evacuating Ukraine and accepting the fact that Russia is defeated militarily means the end of Putin. It means that Putin is finished within maybe not days or months, but within maybe half a year or so, uh, he's going to be ended. Now, wh wh why, why do you think that's the case on the ground? Because, I mean, I have no idea what's going on on the ground, but I am hearing from, uh, you know, through Western and other sources that the Russians are actually doing increasingly better as time goes on. That's, that's the way it's being talked about here. It's absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Uh, uh, well, of course, uh, we. Uh, if you uh, speak to Russian independent military experts, including those like Strelkov, who are very nationalist, but very close to the actual military on the ground, what they report is a disaster. They report the army falling apart, very much situation of 1916, right before Russian Revolution. Uh, command and control structures are disintegrating. Uh, the artillery uh, doesn't have enough shells, uh, enough uh, uh, firepower, to uh, enough uh, uh, ammunition to fight. Uh, high Mars's American uh, multi-rocket uh, multi launching systems, as far as I remember at the time, the name. High Mars's are inflicting enormous damage. And uh, just uh, one thing which is happening, why I'm saying it's happening on, in real time right now. Uh, for two days, Antonov Bridge is shelled by Ukrainian troops. Antonov Bridge is the major connection between uh, Russian troops on the left bank of Dnieper and Russian troops on the right bank of uh, Dnieper, of the, of the river. Which means that if Antonov Bridge fails to function, uh, the whole Russian army, which is around Kherson, is going uh, to stay without ammunition, fuel, uh, food, and so on and so on. It's a whole army. It's a, a, 
uh, it's one of the, of, the, of the major Russian forces or, or the Russian armies on the ground. If, uh, if they fail to reestablish connection through Antonov Bridge, uh, the choice they have now is either uh, to leave Kherson, which is the major acquisition uh, Russian army ever made during this war, which also means that uh, uh, it is like recognizing the war is lost because that's the major conquest. Uh, which they're going to evacuate, or they're going to stay or, which probably will probably be the order of Putin, which means there's going to be another Stalingrad. You'll have this whole army with ammunition, without ammunition, fuel, uh, and, and food. Uh, and uh, uh, this is exactly why Russian military are very unhappy with the military leadership. I mean, the top military leadership like Shoigu and others, they're not even professional military. They're uh, career politicians uh, in 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 epaulets, uh, in the uniforms. Well, well, let me ask what 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 well, then what then that does this lead towards neg a negotiated settlement or does it lead toward a more desperate uh, form of attack? Meaning, perhaps, do they even get serious about uh, tactical nuclear weapons? Putin may probably be interested in tactical nuclear weapons, but military will probably not allow him to get even close to that. I think uh, the big question is whether we are going to have some kind of coup d'etat uh, or uh, there will be some other solution. We don't know, but definitely they have to solve the problem. They have to solve the problem. The problem is they have to get rid of Putin. They have to get uh, um, somebody to blame for everything, um, leave Ukraine, try to make a deal with the West and try exactly to uh, somehow to uh, continue Putinism without Putin, neoliberalism without uh, the most compromised uh, personnel. Uh, as I spoke about Western neoliberals, they, as far as I understand, they're trying to uh, move into a new model of development, but trying to retain as much as possible from the previous model with the new one. And I think this is exactly what Russian elite wants to do. They want uh, to get rid of Putin, that's for sure because they know that Putin is extremely toxic. Uh, Putin is irrelevant and inadequate. Uh, they have to get rid of him, but getting rid of him is difficult, not only because uh, um, the, there is a, uh, a system which uh, is based on uh, securing his power through uh, political police and so on and so on, which is not the major problem. The major problem is that they are afraid of destabilizing the system too much. So you get rid of Putin, okay, but what are you going to do with the rest of the system, you see? Uh, so that says the power of dictators, uh, contrary to what many people think, is uh, not with the, with the political police, with the, with the security agencies and so on. The power of the people is very much with the uh, part of the bourgeoisie, which actually is not happy with it, you see? So in that sense, the, uh, they they know that getting rid of the of the top person is uh, is really dangerous because that it's like uh, opening a Pandora box. Uh, you do that and uh, you solve a minor problem. And well, they know the history of Russian Revolution. They know the history of Russian Revolution, but uh, somehow they have to solve the problem. I think they will find the way to solve the problem. Uh, most probably, uh, right now when we are talking, there are some other people talking about these problems within 
uh, Rublovka, which is kind of Russian most uh, most um, kind of wealthy, most uh, um, most uh, rich neighborhood, like. I don't know what's the, the equivalent in, in, in the United States, uh, but we know it's the, the neighborhood for the billion years and multi-billion years. So uh, I think well, this is a, while we are talking now, most probably these people are just thinking, th sitting there drinking vodka and discussing how to solve the problem, whether they will solve the problem or not, I don't know, but they are going to solve it somehow. Uh, but uh, also I'm sure that this is basically what uh, military commanders of the medium and uh, and and also some some of the high ranking guys high ranking guys in the military are talking about also right now in Kherson and maybe even in Moscow. Uh, so they have to do something and they don't know what to do. And uh, uh, this is exactly their um, the dead end for the for the regime and for the system. And this is also good and bad. It's. Uh, it's bad in the sense that, as we told, this is like, like with the climate crisis story, you see? Something has to be done, but it's not going to be get done unless somebody has to be abolished. Somebody at the very top has to be abolished, and abolishing some people at the very top, it's only the beginning of a much, uh, much more serious and much more dramatic and dangerous process. What's the mood of the Russian people? There is no mood. There's no more. Uh, Russian people are just, uh, you know, I published a few texts about that. Also, look at we have this English language, um, this English language uh, subscription service, um, Russian Descent, uh, done by Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi is at Substack. Uh, he um, kind of sense uh, to subscribers some of the Russian texts in which also Russian left-wing sociologists and activists discuss uh, these problems. And uh, you see, Russian uh, society, as I told you, it's very depressed. It's very depressed. People are just watching what's happening there, uh, sometimes surprised and shocked by what's happening. Uh, they don't know what to do, and they're waiting for something to happen to change the situation. Uh, so military may move in with some initiative uh, politically. Uh, well, some of the, uh, ironically, some of the security people who are very unhappy can also move in. But I can hardly imagine at this stage some kind of mass protest. Uh, maybe later this autumn, maybe later when the situation gets worse. Um, but not right now. If I were Ukrainian, uh, I wouldn't fight for one day uh, to, uh, quote unquote, liberate Donbass or Crimea. Uh, it's not worth thousands of Ukrainian lives so that uh, Ukrainian oligarchs can control these territories. If somehow out of the situation you could have a real people's uprising and, and, and actually overthrow the Ukrainian oligarchs in the process of this, uh, that that's another matter, but that doesn't seem what's happening. The tragedy of the situation is, of course, that Ukrainian oligarchs are no better than Russian oligarchs. There is no doubt about it. But we should not forget who is now uh, the aggressive side. Uh, and it's not about Donbass and Crimea, by the way. Uh, even Ukrainian government, 
at this stage is not demanding Crimea and uh, Donbass to be taken back into Ukraine. What they're demanding is that Russian army uh, should return back to its position, which it had taken on February 23rd, before the actual uh, outburst of the big war, which is probably what most Ukrainian people would agree with as well. But you should not uh, forget the impact of um, mass destruction, which was inflicted by Russian military on uh, the Ukrainian people. Uh, because uh, there were thousands of people who uh, died in Mariupol. There were uh, thousands of people uh, who died elsewhere. Uh, civilian casualties are quite impressive and, uh, and terrible. And uh, of course, that fuels not only anti-Russian sentiment, but also the uh, ability of the Ukrainian troops to fight back. But the most interesting thing here is that uh, uh, most people who fight on the Ukrainian side are Russian speakers, and they're actually Russians. Uh, so uh, it is very interesting that now most of the Ukrainian military who are um, fighting the war are Russian speakers and Russians, including generals, including top generals, and who are increasingly capable of speaking out against Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, so uh, I do not exclude that the outcome uh, in, on the Ukrainian side would also be uh, that, take, uh, that the power would be taken over by the militaries or by some of the proxies, like uh, the ones of the, the politicians who are proxies for the military, political proxies of the military. Uh, people like uh, Alexei Aristovich, for example, which I love to quote because he is the, the one who is becoming extremely popular both in Ukraine and in Russia, speaking. Yeah, you talked about him in our last segment, yeah. Speaking up, speaking up, um, very uh, uh, clearly and very radically against Ukrainian nationalism. And um, a few others who are um, trying to, uh, uh, to promote the same agenda. So interestingly, I, I think that possibly in Ukraine, if the military take over, it's not necessarily going to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing for Ukraine. Uh, in Russia, we cannot envisage military taking over politically. They may play a role in, in political change, but they're not going to take over politically because the structure of Russian and Ukrainian military is very different. And the culture is very different these days. Though historically they're coming from the same route, but they developed in, very, in a very different way. Uh, but uh, again, I think that uh, contrary to what many people think, uh, those who want the war are not the, the military. Those who want the war to continue are politicians uh, who force military to keep fighting. Uh, this is something you have to understand. And uh, unless uh, Russia is uh, changing politically, there is no way we can get out of it. Well, do you see the possibility of Russia agreeing to more or less go back to February 23rd? Oh, it's very easy. There was just one person at this point who will not agree, uh, which is Vladimir Putin. I think everybody else, even within the oligarchy, is ready to compromise. But they have to get rid of Putin, and it's not so easy, as I told you before, because 
uh, it's not only about the security uh, apparatus of Putin, which is protecting him physically, but it's very much their own fear of uh, getting things out of control. All right, well, let's continue this again soon. Thanks very much, Boris. Okay, thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And please don't forget all the donate and subscribe and all the buttons.